As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Before we get started today, listeners, I'm going to take a punt and say that it's likely that some of you are gentlemen of a certain age and you've spent slash wasted several hours of your life playing football manager down the years. But if you wanted to get better at the game, you can join our very own Ian McIntosh, author of the world-famous Football Manager Stole My Life, on Tuesday the 25th of May for the Ultimate Football Manager Masterclass. Sports Interactive's Tom Davidson will deliver a top-level briefing on the secrets of FM21 and then former Rangers Aston Villa and Birmingham manager Alec McLeish will pass on some real-life lessons from his nearly 25 years in real-life management. There are top prizes to be won too, including the opportunity to take on McLeish in a live-streamed winner-takes-all game of FM21. The event is all online and you can get your ticket for only £7 right now over at link.dice.fm slash masterclass. That's really catchy. So we'll do it one more time. Link.dice.fm slash masterclass. I'm sorry, you can sit there and look and play with all your silly machines as much as you like. Is Gascoigne going to have a crack? He is, you know. Oh, I think! Brilliant! What should an independent football regulator be called? Why is the curler the most aesthetically pleasing goal of all? Why does film and TV keep getting football very subtly wrong? When did goal nets lose all their personality? And why Rabonas are the scourge of modern football? Brought to your ears by The Athletic, this is Football Clichés. Right now, you can subscribe to The Athletic for a special price of $3.99 a month for six months. That's 40% off the full price of a subscription. You'll enjoy great analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around, as well as ad-free versions of all of our podcasts. So go to theathletic.com forward slash cliches pod to take advantage of this special 40% discount. That's theathletic.com forward slash cliches pod. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 70, S-E-V-E-N-T-Y 
of the Football Clichés podcast. I'm Adam Hurry, and with me, first of all, is Jack Pitbrook. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Good to be back. Yeah, it's nice to have you. Um, alongside you for Mesut Harland Dicks this week, it's football writer, author of the biggest book on my bookshelf, and many others, and editor of The Blizzard, it's Jonathan Wilson. Welcome to you. Oh, thank you very much for having me. It's a great, it's a great pleasure to be here. You know, these these are the days that this is why you get into the game in the first place. So. <laughs> I'm sure there'll be a few butterflies, but I'm just going to try and go out there and enjoy the experience. Yeah, yes, yes. I mean, via South America and and Hungary, it, all roads led to here. I think. Yes, I mean, I, yeah, I've been a keen listener from day one, so it, it genuinely is a great pleasure to be here. Uh, we'll, we'll find out in due course what made you send me the words, I feel sick, I can't speak, <laughs> and we, with justification actually. But first of all, we're going to get into the adjudication panel. First of all, the issue this week that football should appoint or create some sort of independent regulator, Jack. Now, not being a huge enthusiast for football governance, the only question that came into my head here was what the hell are we going to call this thing? There are certain formats to independent regulators in the United Kingdom. I, I'm inclined to go with a kind of off prefix, which yeah. opens up a world of possibilities. Yeah, so I think given things like Ofsted, Ofgem, Ofqual, I think that's how it would have to work for football. So I was thinking about this uh, laying in bed last night, what would I call it? And mm-hmm. I, the best thing I could come up with was Offside, which of course is the Office for Football Supporters Investment Development and Equality. Oh, you've gone. Oh, you've gone for the full acronym, not the full just, acronym. Oh, yeah, offside. Oh, good, good depth. I couldn't. I tried to come up with other other things like uh, tried to make goal work or score or just other footbally words that could be acronymized. The closest other thing I got was, wouldn't it be cool if you named it after a footballer? So if you called it the Soccer Regulation National Authority, it would be Cerna. <laughs> Uh, and then I tried to come up with other ones like that, and I genuinely couldn't. So I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with offside. I don't know how important it is, Jonathan, to to really stick to the strict acronymization as Jack has done. I mean, if you take Ofcom for example, this is it's a, basically a portmanteau, isn't it? So uh, we could go for off ball. Yeah, off off the ball. Offside, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Tom Hancock suggests off foot, but if if I mean off something appears to be the the most on vogue. Way of doing things. I mean, if we want to name it after a player, do we name it after a player who famously never got into trouble? They, you know, John Charles never got booked. Gary Lineker never got booked. I mean, Lineker, I guess, is maybe a bit too current, but could we just call it John Charles? No, I, I, we can't name a, an independent regulator after somebody. This is not how it works. Also, it? Um, Lineker's is already a um, branch of bars around uh, you know, Ibiza, Mallorca, <laughs> Falaraki. Uh, so I think you might run into some copyright issues if we were to call this Lineker's. And it would undermine the authority of, of, their, of their powers as well. So the only, the only alternative really is to, is to go full officialdom. Jonathan, and perhaps go along the lines of the British Board of Football Classification, perhaps. Like, really kind of ram home how stuffy and how, how rigid the whole thing is. But perhaps under their remit, they could finally define what an X-rated tackle is. <laughs> yeah, quite. Or, or maybe... I mean, I think it's a problem generally in the modern age that we, we've become too sort of flippant and brand-oriented with this kind of thing. Mm. So, it's a, you know, I, I, I agree, stuffiness is the key to this. We want these people yeah. to be beyond reproach. So you know, the way the House of Lords ought to be is that these are doddery old blokes who haven't got any sort of vested interests. They're, they're purely concerned with the pursuit of fairness. Uh, and then you come up with something you know, 
something very basic, very simple, uh, something that has authority, something like, I don't know, uh, the Football Association. I think that might work. <laughs> oh, I didn't see that coming. No, very good. No, very good point. Um, who's heading up this new scenario? I mean, I've got Stuart Ripley in my head, Jack, because he's always <laughs> he's always involved in these uh, high-profile disciplinary cases. I feel like he's the man. Yeah, he's the the king of the uh, independent regulatory regulatory commissions. Every time you're reading a, uh, every time you're reading one of those fifty page documents the FA brings out about who said what to whom or who placed what bets on which transfer, he is yeah. always in the mix somewhere. Um, I kind of feel like it would be difficult to do it without one of the two Garys, Lineker and mm. Neville, who've obviously made a big push for this this week, who have um, kind of ascended to this huge profile as like. Cause, we speak for the game, or they, they speak for football kind of figures. They don't strike me as particularly neutral in this scenario, though. I mean, I feel like they might be quite prejudiced for all future um, administrative-level wranglings. Um, I don't know. I feel like we need someone bland and someone relatively anonymous. Well, when you then say neutral, been... who are the, what are the two sides? Are business on one side, fans on the other? It's a, it's, you want a businessman who's a fan? I mean, do we really want Simon Jordan? <laughs> no, definitely not. Definitely not. I mean, who is the new Burt Millichip? Right, who is the Burt Millichip of the 2020s? I don't know. Um, we need but see, you trusted those men, didn't sure. you? I mean, Millichip, uh, Doug Ellis, who invented the bicycle kick famously. Yes, yes, um, of course. Gordon McKeague, a man who literally mm. yeah, looked like death. Chairman uh, of yeah, the FA Challenge Committee. Just a, a man created out of shades of grey. Just they were the greatest men. Um, yeah, it just would work. Wouldn't it's work. just a we shame need, Peter need... Swales is no longer around to, uh, <laughs> to head it up. But yeah, I'm, I'm glad we've I'm glad we covered this because it's important. It, need, it needs a strong name. We have a selection of um, pedantic questions from our listeners this week. Um, really colourful selection. First of all, um, this may require a hell of a lot of discussion, but I'll do it anyway. Jack Footy and NFL asks, what are the criteria for a natural finisher? Now, it seems like a fairly obvious question, but... It's quite a loaded thing being a natural finisher. It's one of those, it's one of those things that rules you in or out of a of an England squad or something like that. It's almost almost like a backhanded compliment. But I, I've never quite got my head around it. I mean, Robbie Fowler was a natural finisher. Paul Scholes was a natural finisher. But it was always almost held against them in a weird way. Yeah, one of my I remember one of my first memories of England squads arguments was wasn't there, wasn't there an issue in somebody accused Michael Owen of not being a natural finisher in the build up to the ninety eight World Cup. That's ben it. Huddle said he wasn't. Yeah, I don't know what, but then I'm like, what? I don't. I. It's one of those phrases where I don't know what exactly it means. Is it to do with being very good at finishing from an early age, like as soon as you come into the team at seventeen? Because on that basis, Michael Owen is a natural finisher. He's got yeah, so I many goals agree. in his first season in the Premier League. Yeah, John, I, th- I think it's more of an aesthetic thing. I think. I think. If they're an awkward-looking finisher, despite the fact they might well be innately quite good at it and score lots of goals, um, then you don't qualify for being a natural finisher. You, it, there is an element of aesthetics about it, style. Yeah, there is, but I also think it's 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 a. I think it actually genuinely is a thing. It's an ability that's very very hard to hard to teach, obviously, but yeah, by definition, but also to explain. But somehow an awareness of where space is and where it will remain in the time it takes you to from from a pass to hit, going into the net so something like Gert Muller I think is would be yeah, the, the great example if you look at the goals he scores very few of them I mean a very few of them are from far out so he, you know, he's got that sort of 
finishing in this sense, I think, also involves the sort of ability to to find space in the box. But also knowing where a goalkeeper's weight is, knowing where the goalkeeper might be unsighted. So a lot, a lot of Muller's finishes don't go anywhere near the corner, but the keeper can't get there because his weight's going the wrong way because he struck the ball early or he struck it in a way the keeper can't quite see. So I think it encompasses all of those attributes where, in its capacity to assess a situation very quickly and know where you need to put the ball and then have the ability to put it there. Often not very hard, often not very dramatically, but efficiently and regularly. I would I would argue that sort of Muller was too much of a poacher. Poachers don't poachers and natural finishers don't. Oh, this, oh, this is a myth. This thing. is a complete myth. <laughs> you I mean, might don't don't get me going. Time. I can't believe you got me going on Get Muller already. <laughs> get Muller is so much more than a finisher. Look at that game when, when West Germany beat England three one at Wembley in yeah. uh, what's sort of seventy two. And he is brilliant in that game. He scores twice, but it's not that. It's his movement. It's the way he holds the ball up. He's a sensational centre forward. Don't demean him by calling him a poacher. He's so much more than that. It's not he's demeaning. a natural it's not finisher. Demeaning. Yeah, but it's, okay. it's, 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 a, it's such a small part of his game. Gert Muller, okay, he, he might have to change his lifestyle and his diet, but he could cope in the modern game. He has the game to cope as a modern centre forward. No Manchester doubt, City now would love The majority of his Gert World Muller. Cup goals came from about four yards out, didn't they? They did, but look at everything else he did as well off camera. I, I have no doubts about Gerbola. To, to round this one off, I, I feel like the latest candidate, Jack, for the natural finisher tag is Mason Greenwood. And, and you always it's always kind of presented as this kind of inside knowledge. It's a, they say around the club that Mason Greenwood is probably the most natural finisher that they have. It's kind of, it's like this kind of inside knowledge. It's kind of kudos to know about natural finishers. You're absolutely right. But I, I think I, you definitely see it with Greenwood, don't you? Because of, I don't know if the two-footedness is a function of that as well. But his, um, but then with him, it's, I mean, this maybe isn't so much what, what Jonathan was talking about with the ability to, to not put the ball in the corner. Because with Greenwood, I see him put the ball in the corner all the time. I mean, the... The one modern one that would stand out to me, and maybe I'm biased, is Sergio Aguero, I think, is fantastic at this kind of thing. Whereas Harry Kane, who is probably going to break the Premier League goal-scoring record, maybe, I don't know, he's not someone who that tag would naturally be applied to, even though he does score buckets and buckets of goals. Uh, because he falls under the remit of kind of self-created, kind of self-made 10,000 hours. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But that, yeah. that's the yeah. aesthetic thing you're talking about. There's something not quite natural about Harry Kane, which is why I think yeah. a lot, well, I was going to say a lot of us, why I took a long time to think he's any good. Yeah, I, he's I won't tie He's a very mechanical it. footballer, isn't he? Yeah. I, I, yeah. I wonder if there's any way of testing natural finishing. Like, could, could you say, like, so you get a stadium at night and you set up the, the goalkeeper, you set up the defence, and you have a, like a bowling machine of equivalent pinging a ball in and suddenly the yeah. floodlights go on and the natural finisher is the one who can score and the unnatural oh, finisher so is the one who has to take to a instinct. touch. Well, so but it's, 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 yeah, but it's again. I think instinct is a, is a word that has slightly other connotations because it's that ability to assess where the keeper is and where his weight is, which is sl- maybe that is instinct. But it, there's also a mental process going on. This is the uh, Stephen Jay Gould point, isn't it? In um, something in Mudville, the book. You know Stephen Jay Gould, the evolutionary biologist. Sure. And, it, and he talks about how uh, you know there's this sort of uh, cultural snobbery against sports people, but actually the mental calculations that a footballer has to go or I think he's talking about baseball but you know a baseball player goes through a batter goes through to assess where the ball is and and where mm-hmm. how to hit it or you know somebody taking a free kick or hitting a volley those mental calculations are incredibly quick and there's actually some research being done I looked into this after Wayne Rooney had scored that overhead kick against City it's actually it's 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 not physically possible to do what he did <laughs> right. the, the, the the time it takes for the 
with neural reflex to go from a brain to the I don't know if neural reflex is the right word it just sounded good at the time yeah, that's fine. so if I'm wrong fine but I, I'm not that interested um, <laughs> to get from you know his head to his foot there's, there's not enough time to make that calculation and uh, so there's this theory you know you know Brontosaurus's uh, mm. They had brains in their tails, I think, as well right. as in their brains, because it took so yeah. long for the messages to, to go from the head to the tail. We needed a secondary brain. So there's this idea that somewhere in our nervous system, we may have these sort of subsidiary brains. Uh, and then what we think of as, yeah, I, I just saw it coming over and uh, I knew where the defender was. I got my back to him and, and you know, I just stuck it in the top corner. That is that is a post hoc rationalisation of the brain. Uh, yes. Uh, to, bit... to deal with the actually quite terrifying idea that your legs are ha- happening, you know, are, are functioning independently of, uh, of mental control. And th- and that explains natural finishing. Good, excellent. Thoroughly enjoyed the next question. Lewis, Jonathan says Ian Perveda making his debut for Leeds this season. When was the last time we had an Ian in the Premier League? Can you even can you even fathom who that might have been? Uh, I mean, who comes to mind immediately? Uh, Ian Bowyer, Ian Snowden. Uh, even those Premier League era, I don't think. Maybe Snowden not. Snowden may no, have been. Snowden might have been very. You're right at the start. Uh, Snowden wasn't. Oh, Snowden was. Snowden was a Premier League Ian, but he was right at the very start. Yeah. Uh, Ian Brightwell. Ian Brightwell. Ian, Ian Brightwell. Wone. Smack bang in the middle. Ian Wone. Wone. Won't smack bang in the middle as well. Um, I'm actually going by date of birth. I have to say, I'm not going by date of last game. I do not have that data in. Front when of. would when was Rush's last game for Liverpool? Uh, he well, he played on for Leeds and Newcastle, so yeah. 97, 98, 99. Oh, so, so Ian Rush, natural finisher, yes or no? Yes, hundred yeah. percent. Really, I think yes. so I think he was quite mechanical, and I, I, I've, I remember talking to Ian Rush about finishing. He was. I think he right. set up a school to teach finishing. So he obviously wasn't convinced it was natural. He thought it could be educated. <laughs> um, anyway, Ian, back to the Ians. All Ian I want Rush. is the previous Ian before Perveda. Pre-Perveda Ians, please. I think Rush would have been more... Rush's last games in the Premier League. Rush and Wayne would have been after Brightwell because City That's were relegated in 1996. 25 years, years ago. ago. Well, you do do you think have, we've been without Ians for 20 years? You do have Jans, which is obviously the you same... You can't have Jans. You Same name, though, isn't it? It's just no. It does. It doesn't matter. I mean, there's there's a connotation to Ian, which I would argue does not apply to a Yan, especially in an English context. Well, yeah, it's a. I guess it's a an Irish Scottish name, isn't it? It's a Gaelic name. So maybe that just shows the, the, name. the diminishing the diminishing impact of Scottish Scottish players in English football. Of we've I think it. you're quite Ian E. Jonathan, you come across as a bit of an Ian. I, if I if I met you in the street, I think I reckon he's called Ian. Fuck off. <laughs> What's wrong with Ian? <laughs> Uh, I think we know. We had, uh, Ian, Studious. if we're allowed the double I, Ian Dowie, uh, he no. obviously managed, he briefly took over from Phil Brown at Hull City in about 2010. Well, that's a man- that's managerial. Yeah, game. I don't know when Dowie's last game in the top flight would have been off the top of my I, head. I am going to put you both out of your misery. Um, I'm actually slightly disappointed with this answer because I thought it would be someone a lot further back, but it was actually 2013. Uh, Optus Duncan Alexander has furnished me with this information. Um, in what Sounds like the most Ian E kind of game, Reading versus QPR in 2013. It was Ian Hart. Quite a big player, Ian Hart. You know, not a nobody. In both We respects. should have got that. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Right, so, yeah, I, I, was, I thought it'd be Ian Walker, someone like that. Oh, Ian no. Walker, yeah. Yeah, so we've, we, we had gone. We had gone seven years without an Ian in well, the Who was the last Gary? too long. Gary's are dying out. Who's the last Gary? Yeah, Gary's. Ga- Kevin's Gary was Machine. 80s. Gary's was 90s. Gary Breen could be, yeah. 
Gary Medine. Yes, maybe. But I mean, Gary yeah. was, um, you know, it, it was it was invented by Gary Cooper, wasn't it? It wasn't it wasn't a name until Gary Cooper came along, oh. and he, he when he applied to Equity, whatever his real first name was, didn't count, and he was from Gary, Indiana, and he so he went for Gary, and so the whole the whole wave of Garys that we enjoyed so much in the eighties, uh, entirely down to Gary Cooper, and now Gary Cooper is you know is fading into the distance, and so are the Garys. I mean, whatever happens to, to Gary. strong silent type. <laughs> Thanks to Gary Cooper, but my brain simply won't compute a Gary pre-1979, I don't think. It's, it's, it's a very 80s, 90s name. Our final item for the adjudication panel. Scott Sumner has drawn my attention to Stephen Warnock's co-commentary on Radio 5 Live towards the end of Manchester United versus Fulham. It was Lee Mason's final game as a referee, just to add a little bit of flavour to this one. Let's hear it. As Tete then was fouled by Shaw, and that'll be a free kick. And uh, Lee Mason... Final game in charge is a top-flight referee going out with a bit of a flourish with two yellow cards in a <laughs> matter of minutes. Well, he, he can only hand out what's in front of him, and that was a, a clear yellow card from Luke Shaw. Jonathan, I've never, I've never ever heard those words in relation to cards, and I don't think I ever thought I ever would. Well, yeah, I mean, you know what he actually means is you can only referee the game that's in front of you. Yeah, there's a slight mixing of of of, of, um, of metaphors. What does that mean? What you can only what you can only give what you see. Yeah, exactly. The, the, right. Yeah, the, it's not that Lee Mason's thought. You know what? Last last five minutes, last oh, game. I see. I'm right. going to give out six red cards here. That'll be hilarious. Deeney will be really pissed off. <laughs> Jack, but he's, you know, he's of... reacting to the game. He's seen a foul. He's given a yellow card. It's... Okay. No, I'm clear on this now. But um, Jack, if you ever. Whenever you hear about a referee making his final appearance, who immediately comes into your head? Well, uh, it can only be the the great Jeff Winter, that incredible blog post, which I imagine most people who listen to the podcast will be familiar with. If you're not, yes. just Google, is it, I don't know, Jeff Winter, Farewell, Anfield, or something like that. I, I, don't, I, I won't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't already seen it. But, just uh, the idea of Lee Mason saying, well, the way that Kenny, T- Kenny Tete accepted his yellow card made me think, did he know it was my final game? <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me. He's a very knowledgeable right back. <laughs> <laughs> Players um, deliberately lining up to commit bad fouls and in injury time to get Lee Mason's last yellow. <laughs> Turns out it was Alphonse Areola for uh, time wasting. Yeah, shame to see Lee Mason go. The only Premier League referee who looks like me. Uh, real disappointment, but yeah, can only play give the cards in front of him. Never, I, I, I can't. I mean, say he's, so, he's what he's done there. He's he's just he's mixed up. He can yeah, he can only play what's in front of him. With he can only play the hand he's dealt. Yeah, you can only beat what's in front of you. I think he's tried to kind of shoehorn into refereeing. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. But tell you what does work. This is Mesut Harlan Dix with Jonathan Wilson. Jonathan, tell us about your first fascination with football. Okay, so this was a goal uh, scored when I was six that I saw on TV and became completely obsessed by. And and so I I guess by extension, other goals of this type. And it's Ronnie Whelan's winner for Liverpool against Manchester United in the 1983 League Cup final. Uh, It's in injury time. Sorry, it's in extra time. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's 1-1. United have taken the lead. Liverpool have come back with a a Kennedy long-range effort. Whelan gets the ball on the sort of top left of the box. He tries to poke a little three ball through and it's blocked. It's, I think it's Duxbury's shins, comes back to him. And he, he opens up his body and curls it absolutely beautifully with his right foot. Not a huge amount of pace, 
mm-hmm. and it arcs perfectly round. Gary Bailey does the most magnificent arch back flailing diving save, which just about covers up how bad his starting position was. And it goes <laughs> maybe a foot inside the post. It's a beautiful, beautiful goal. And I spent my entire footballing career, pathetic as that was, attempting to score this goal, attempting to... And given that I was always a right-back, not the easiest goal to replicate because you have to be on the left side and, and yeah. if you're totally right-footed as I am. Yep. And so there was once, I think I must have been 18, at Gateshead Stadium playing a game on the, on the Astro at the back, not on the main mm. pitch. Oh, yeah, sure. And I, I, I thought I'd done it. I, I, I got the ball from the throw-in, <laughs> sent it out there, miles ahead of the post, comes back, ping, off the angle of post and bar. Then there was a game uh-huh. in India when I lived there in late 94. Mm. Uh, again, got the ball from, I was playing centre mid that day, got the, got the, got the ball from the throw-in, cut inside, scored, but was furious because it slightly caught it heavy and it went in the middle of a goal, not in the corner. Oh, yeah, too much purchase. And then my final year at university, so what I knew is my final year of playing football because I'm crap at football. So university football, college football is my level. Yeah. Opened the day of the season, corners cleared, the ball's played back to me. Little step over, dragged back with the outside of the right foot, nutmeg the fullback, Tommy Skulls. Send it out. <laughs> That's not a real name. But no, it, carry is. On. it is. He was a first team player playing down, and, and I, I knew him a little bit. Sorry, Scott. Send it out there, arcs round, arcs out there, and, and the keeper, bless him, went full Gary Bailey, the full arch back, and just leaps over, and it's an inch under the bar, an inch inside the post, the most perfect goal. And with that, it was, it was over. But yeah, that, that Ronnie Whelan goal and goals of that ilk, I absolutely adore. Okay, so I'm on board with this straight away because. Um, Jack curlers, especially from the edge, from the corner of the box, you know, in the ideal position that go not necessarily postage stamp, but far enough away from the goalkeeper. We're talking about a very telegenic type of goal. I can't think of a camera angle that it wouldn't look good from. Yeah, so the, the best one I can think of this season was James Madison scored one at the Etihad at the start of the season when Leicester hammered City. And you can actually watch a YouTube clip where they show it from every angle, and it is really, really good. It's a, it is a bit like the Ronnie Whelan one. Like he's, he's kind of, he's coming inside and he's got the fullback in front of him. And the classic commentator phrase is, "It was the only place in the goal he could have put it." I, I feel slightly guilty for taking, um, you know, a television-centric view on these sorts of things most of the time, rather than like what it must be like to be there as a fan. But Jonathan, curlers look good from either side doesn't matter what cam what side the camera's on if you're behind the ball and seeing it go into the top corner great but if it's coming f- from the other side you still appreciate trajectory it's it's a very versatile goal there's there's something in it for everybody yeah absolutely i mean i, I guess if you are on the um you know so Whelan's on the liverpool left i guess if you're a fan on the liverpool right mm. you might not quite be clear just how in the corner it was but yeah, you'd still see the Bailey dive. And the great thing about a curler, proper curler, yeah. so you, you could say it's the classic Thierry Henry goal, but it's not, because Henry, I think, hit them slightly too hard. It's it's not clipping it into that far corner. It's floating it out there. And the lack of pace is what allows it to, to bend in. And that lack of pace, of course, makes it a better spectacle, because you have that fraction extra second to appreciate it and think, keeper's not going to get there. It's going to curl yes. enough. There's more and, and emphasis on the arc, isn't there? Exactly. So it's a it's a very artistic type of goal, I think. On that point, as with many kind of subtypes of footballing skill, one of the things that enters my head is that someone somewhere did that for the first time. God knows when that would have been. I mean, could you even speculate, Jonathan, what kind of what decade do you reckon someone would have scored a goal like that for the first time? Well, that's a really interesting question because would you have been able to do it with old balls? I reckon. And I'm not sure. Well, the reason I ask that 
I, I think there's a lot of mythology about old balls, but curling free kicks only really became a thing in the late 50s. So the Brazil team of 58 were noted for it. There's actually a really, really odd bit. Uh, what's his name? Was it Kostic, I think? So the last game that Manchester United played before Munich, so the game in Belgrade, mm-hmm. uh, when they're 3-0 up at half-time and end up drawing at 3-3. And I think it's the second Red Star goal uh, is a curling free kick from, I think it's Kostic. And Bobby Charlton talks about how, well, we'd never seen that before. It was a complete yeah, shock yeah, to that, us. That's, a, that's it, that's it. The stuff that people have looked at and just gone, oh my God, like, what is what world yeah. does this come from? And actually, but, uh, yeah. Valerie Lobanovsky, when he was a player at Dynamo Kiev, which is you know, a decade mm-hmm. later, mm-hmm. Uh, he was famous for um, his, his dead leaf corners. Oh, uh, right. And so people would actually deliberately take up a place in the ground next to the corner flag to watch Lobanovsky put it just put whatever spin on the ball because it's an idea you could control the flight of the mm. ball mm. uh, Len Shackleton when Trevor Ford joined Sunderland for you know a record fee when was that 50 or 51 50 I think and Shackleton famously you know hated the fact Ford had come to steal some of his glory and so would impart passes to him with cruel <laughs> amounts of spin to make Ford look <laughs> an idiot so it clearly was possible and it was known but mm. I guess there's a difference between just making a ball hard to control and actually being able to control that bend and and, and Mm. put it in the top corner. Jack, this doesn't come without its caveats, unfortunately. Um, Whilst I do appreciate a good curler, especially when it's it's so obviously predetermined and uh, and there's nothing the goalkeeper can do about it and it all looks very nice, um, what I won't accept are curlers with a weaker foot. Um, I give you Steve Guppy versus Chelsea in 1999, who, who cut in from the left and, and swung his, his unfavoured right boot. And then there must be many other examples of fullbacks kind of just chancing it. I really don't like weaker foot curlers because you, it, it might be that you, you, just, you just know that it's their weaker foot, but there's something about the mechanics of hitting a ball with a weaker foot that is inherently unsatisfying to watch. And I think, it's, I think it also undermines the great strength of the curled goal, which is knowing that this is precisely precisely what they wanted to achieve like there's always a little bit of luck and randomness when it comes to kind of weaker foot swings this is kind of why a curler is better than just thumping it thumping it from a sort of fairly central area from from 20 or 30 yards is that you is that the curler gives you the satisfaction of knowing that the outcome was precisely what was intended and that's and that's like that is one of the reasons why you know thumping it is overrated when you get to goal of the season competitions for example because the uh, there's always a little bit of randomness. You, do, you don't know with a with a thumped goal specifically which bit of the goal they were trying to put the ball into. Whereas with a curler, you do. That's actually very. That's a very underappreciated appreciated aspect. When we talk about great goals, we talk about execution. We talk about context, but we never talk about whether we think it matched the intention of the player. I don't Precisely. want to get into Benjamin Pavard for France. <laughs> oh God, not again. World Cup 2018 ever again. So I won't talk about that. I, I always wanted to talk to Ronnie Whelan about this. But I've only, weirdly, I've only ever met Ronnie Whelan once, and it was in some very difficult circumstances. So it was, it was between the um, semi-final and the final of the World Cup in 2018, and uh, I was getting a train from St Petersburg down to Moscow. And as anybody who's ever covered a, a major tournament knows, the journey from the second semi-final to the final is always a nightmare because everybody else is making that journey. So I, I was with my friend Kat, who I think you met. She she sets a very yes. hard quizzes on Twitter. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, I'd, I'd booked seats on the train way, way in advance and paid quite a lot because I thought, yeah, let's go whatever first class equivalent is uh, and guarantee getting a seat. 
And sure enough, we get to the station this morning. It's absolute chaos. And we, oh, it's platform two. And there's 300 people run the platform. Oh, it's platform 17. Everybody runs platform 17. And we go, oh, reservations are cancelled. Just get on the train. So we bundle on a train. It's heaving. We find two seats. We sit down. We pull out. We've been going five minutes. And I hear this this uh, angry Glaswegian voice going, no, I, I, I've booked my seat. I want, I want to sit in my seat. I've, I've paid for my seat. I've booked it. I want to sit there. And I look up. And who should be coming towards me but Ray Houghton and Ronnie Whelan. <laughs> and, and Ray Houghton, despite playing for Ireland, of course, grew up in Glasgow. And that is actually a perfect rendition of his voice, as it was that morning. Yes. Yeah, uh, and there's this very harassed-looking train guard who's sort of, a, yeah, OK, we'll, we'll take you to your seat. And I, said, I know it's going to be our seats. And sure enough... So I've got Ray Houghton going, I'm really sorry, son, but I've booked it. I've booked it. And I was like, well, no, it's fine, but I also have a booked seat, so can I now go and sit in my booked seat? At which the guard goes, sir, this is the first class ticket. What are you doing down here? And so I then get to walk off, waving at Ray Houghton and Ronnie Whelan, and that seemed like the wrong, wrong moment to go, oh, by the way, Ronnie, I, I really <laughs> enjoyed your goal in the 1983 League Cup final. I've just realised your Ray Houghton impression actually sounds like Chris Waddle. Um, which I don't think was intended. Less offended than when I called you an Ian, at least. Yes. <laughs> Good story done. <laughs> Jonathan, tell us about you. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Your second love of football, which at at, at first glance looks very open-ended. Yes, it's destiny. Right. And what I mean specifically by that, and I, you know, Although I did live briefly in a Buddhist monastery, I have no belief in destiny or predestination. But what I really love, and it's something that kind of, what really, what I really enjoy about it is the way it drives the worst stats boffins mad. Okay. So I'm, I'm generally pro stats. There's an, yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's a fundamentalist statism that I hate. Mm-hmm. It sort of ignores the, um, the importance of psychology to the game. But there's those moments, and it can be as a player, it can be as a fan, when you're in a game and you suddenly just know either that you're going to win or you're going to lose. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, I guess the classic example is you're, you've gone 1-0 up in the first half and against a better team and they're absolutely pummeling you. And they hit the bar, they hit the post, your keeper makes two or three brilliant saves. And at some point in the second half, you think, yeah, they're not going to score here. This is our day. <laughs> okay. And you, you can feel the belief on both sides. That, and, and that makes those defending players defend better. And it makes the attacking players attack worse because they lose the faith that they've got the opportunity to score. So it's this dens- den- density. Destiny doesn't exist <laughs> until it does. And, and those moments when you feel it happening, I think are truly beautiful. When it feels like you're following a predetermined narrative. Actually, funnily enough, that moment that you mention, that moment you mention is a very significant moment. I don't think it should be underrated because I've said a 
quite a few times on this podcast. Football fans are inherently pessimistic. I think pessimism is a is a solid base to work from. We're going to lose today, or they're going to score in a minute. That that sort of that sort of mindset. No matter how good your team is, and if you get to a point where your pessimism turns on its head and you think they aren't they are this lot aren't going to score, that's a huge thing for your. There must be a lot behind it for you to change your mind like that. Yeah, and of course the reverse probably happens far more often, where you're battering mm. a team. Oh God! As soon as they get a corner, we're going one 0 down here. We're not yeah. going to score. Yeah. And the more chances you score, the less likely you are to score the next chance. So, Jack, we're, we're talking about destiny as a kind of romantic concept for a football fan, particularly. Um, there are, it has some rather mundane close cousins. First of all, the script, um, which is either adhered to or not adhered to, depending on the, the circumstance. Um, does, does the concept of the script and, and things happening that weren't in the script, do you find that quite tiresome now? I feel like it is quite a tired concept, the script. A bit, yeah. The one thing I don't like, and I think we were going to come on to this, is uh, the use of the word narrative. Yes. Which has become a big thing on on Twitter, I think, in the, certainly in the last sort of five or ten years. Mm. And it's a word that's used primarily by people I find very annoying on Twitter. <laughs> and I think, it's, always, it's always hashtagged as well. Yeah, like, there always has to be some critical distance between the person and the word. I think, and when people use narrative on Twitter, what they mean is... It's, so it's used in a derogatory way to mean, look at these stupid journalists drawing connections between events. Yeah. How dare... <laughs> and and, the, and the, the implication is, you know, I live merely in the world of facts, but you stupid journalists live in the world of narrative. How dare you try to draw associations between these, these data points, which I am able to see clearly each one from the other. I can, I, can judge, I can judge things purely on their own terms. I don't need to draw any connections. That's what it's getting at, right? It's like if you say, if you connect an event to a game that happened last year, or if you say, well, that's interesting, he scored against them and he played for them in the past or whatever, then people say, oh, it's just narrative, isn't it? And uh, so it's just used by idiots to make themselves sound clever, and that's why I don't like it. Okay, but on the flip side, then, John, narrative is quite a convenient device. Say, if you you're on sort of I don't know color piece duty for a game, narrative can come in quite handy. You you, you could you could have written it before the game. Yeah, well, that's that's not the flip side. That's the same side. Yeah, narrative is how we understand the world. Uh, I'm, right. sorry, no, I'm saying narrative as as a helpful thing rather yeah, than absolutely, a, it's a yeah. helpful thing. It, 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 without narrative. There's nothing. There's no <laughs> narrative. Is how we process the world. But why did it become such a grubby word then? I mean, I don't oh, think okay, this, because is, this isn't purely down to people hating football journalists. I mean, a lot of it is. Let's be honest. <laughs> um, I mean, I think we're we're more hated than traffic ones and estate agents. Um, it has got to a very weird. We're situation. certainly we're certainly more more hated among certain sets of fans than. Have you moaned about the Wi-Fi yet? Since fans have no, been back, no, I haven't. <laughs> but I will. Don't worry. Yes. No, but we, you know, among certain sets of fans, we're more hated than the prison guards and torturers of oppressive regimes. I mean, that's yeah. a literal fact. Yeah. That's um, right. Yeah. <laughs> no, but there's, there's there's two there's two slightly distinct things here. So the narrative is how we process the world and how we seeing those connections is how we have some notion of what might happen in the future, mm. and and how we sort of work out how we got to the point we're at and try and explain that. There's also it's very close cousin which is the template, and that's a bad thing. Yeah. Templating is bad. Yeah. That's where you, 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 know, you take your, your, your pre-cut shape and you whack it down on the, the pastry of the game. <laughs> and no matter what the consistency or shape of that pastry, you pull out a cookie in that, that shape. Okay. And that, that could be very wasteful, it could yeah. be totally inappropriate, and it can lead you to, to force events into your preconceived idea but that's that's not what narrative is. That's mm. 
a template. It's a preconceived idea. So the, okay. you know, the idea of Leeds burnout is where that happens quite a lot. Right. So it's not unreasonable to point out that over the past 20, 30 years, Marcelo Bielsa teams have had a tendency late in seasons to burn out. Mm-hmm. When Leeds failed to get promoted in Bielsa's first season, it was not unreasonable to speculate or to wonder or to ask Bielsa the question, as Jack, I know, did in Loftus Road <laughs> yes, on a famous occasion, um, <laughs> whether burnout might be the issue. What we've seen last season and then again this season is that for some reason it seems not to be a problem anymore, and that's fantastic. But not to ask the question would be very, very bizarre. So to, to interpret every Leeds defeat as an example of burnout is templating, to ask the question of why it might be happening or why it isn't happening is using narrative to facilitate understanding. Jonathan, speaking of scripts and destinies... <laughs> very nice link. Yes. Tell us about... I know this is very close to your heart, this third and final fascination of football. Um, yeah, I mean, tell us about it. It, it. I think it is a love, even though it often involves me being quite irritated and annoyed. Yeah. But it is when football crops up, particularly in TV detective drama, because that's what <laughs> I watch an awful lot of. At moments, it don't really seem that relevant. And then it allows you to date the episode and to to work out a whole load about what's going on so i think there's and there's, a, there's a couple of of, of of classic examples of this uh i think silent witness i think it's season th- two or three yeah if, if i may i'll quote from your seminal 2018 piece, <laughs> how i deciphered silent witness using football on a spreadsheet um, it contains this quite fantastic paragraph to be honest i mean taken out of context it's even better it simply says none of that though is as confusing as the mystery of neil shipley's disallowed goal for southampton against manchester united which hangs over the second season (laughs) (laughs) playful pedantry at its best it's really really good stuff oh thank you i I mean convincing the guy to let me write that piece might rank as my greatest ever achievement (laughs) um they paid me less than normal. That was the that was the trade-off. <laughs> All right, I see. Uh, yeah, but it, it, so there's a character who is watching um, Manchester United v Southampton on TV. Shipley has a goal ruled out. Uh, I, th- I think for a push, it's a header, uh, and uh, you hear David Pleat mm. absolutely appalled at the decision. He's yeah. outraged as a co-commentator. But the problem is that would imply the game was on terrestrial TV. Pleat at various points did co-commentary with both BBC and ITV. Yeah. But that game was on Sky. Yeah. It was on radio, which is where I suspect the commentary comes from. And it was a match of day later that night, but I don't think Pleat did match of a day. So I, I think it's the radio commentary, presumably for rights reasons, they've, <laughs> they've used. Now, the, the huge problem with this is that it's apparently daytime. In fact, the, the, it, it relies, the, the, whole, the, whole, the whole scene relies on this being during the day, or the, the, the guy's alibi makes no sense. Um, but we can see light streaming in through the window, so you know it's it's uh, it, it it creates all kinds of confusion. And I think it's very clever by the by the scriptwriters to say you know all of this is contingent. Maybe none of this makes sense. Maybe none of this is true. Uh, so the the, you know, the time sequencing is you know is is broken. But then even more baffling is the very next episode. We hear the same clip on a radio. <laughs> And yet, everything... That's unforgivable. That's unforgivable. Well, no, but that's actually the correct one. Yeah, but maybe... Oh, geez, the same clip yeah. for one for TV yeah, medium, one complete. for radio medium. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. suppose it is possible... I suppose it is possible the guy was listening to radio commentary watching the TV. I, I don't think I'd considered that. Mm. Hmm. 
It's possible. Well, some, people be, might, some people probably do that as well. They, they yeah. really don't like a certain co-commentator, so they put the radio on. His well, it was, it was Andy and you got delay so, issues, so that doesn't. Um, yeah, that's yeah. Sorts of issues. Um, but the very next episode, you hear the same, the same clip. Apparently, I was live again, and yet many things in the plot have moved on. Uh, specifically, uh, the Amanda Burton character, uh, Sam Ryan, her relationship with with the superintendent has gone from being in a very happy place to being quite a complex place. And so you think, well, if these two things are happening simultaneously, I mean, no wonder that relationship broke up. If the superintendent wouldn't know where he stood, are you one moment she's pleasant, one moment she's not? Do you know, what surprises me here is that um, you're interest- you seem to be quite genuinely interested in how it affects the plot, whereas I thought you'd be more annoyed at the lack of verisimilitude here. No, well, why I'm not they sure using it is football of- properly? I'm not sure it is a lack of verisimilitude. And I think that's the fascinating thing. It, it's, you know, what are the known facts? The facts are that that game happened, mm. coincidentally, three days before the very launch of Silent Witness's first <laughs> episode, first series in the UK, mm-hmm. which I think is not coincidence. Right. I, you know, I think I think that is a scriptwriter's little nod to, to those of us who, who, who pay attention to these things. Because uh, there's a very strange follow-up to this I'll come on to. So it, it's not unreasonable to think that these two people in, in Cambridge, where, where it's set, are both experiencing this game at the same time it's also not unreasonable that the scriptwriter should separate out two different murder plots because it would otherwise be very very confusing and what we then see is is sam ryan's instability and i think it's you know that that is you know as i go on in that piece you know i, I think there's a she's got a whole load of guilt issues to do with faking post-mortem results but you know that, that's not relevant <laughs> here no um, no but where i do get annoyed yeah oh sorry the follow-up to that is shortly after i've written that piece the next series comes out in which a major plot point is Clarissa being able to identify uh, a body that's been blown up in an explosion in a meth lab as Albanian because of the Partizani Tirana badge that has become welded to his chest. Nah, this is more like it. This is more like it. Definitely. is that the script writer saying to me? Look, we know you like your Eastern European stuff. (laughs) We appreciate what you just done. Have a toffee. I'd like to think it is. Maybe it's not. But there's so little kindness in the world, I'll take it where I can find it. There are, I mean, there there is an aspect here of, you know, when these mistakes, if if they are indeed mistakes, get so niche that most people wouldn't notice them, I guess it it becomes fairly acceptable. But the the magic is in you that you're spotting them. Yeah, and and on that subject of mistakes, Endeavour, which spends an enormous amount of time on the verisimilitude of the 60s and does it brilliantly in terms of the cars, the dress, the music, everything... And then in in late 69, the 69-70 season, they have football results on the TV. Inspector Thursday's watching them. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I can just read through them. I've written them down. Football Division 1. One or two. Cambridge nil, Lincoln 1. Yeah. I mean, they didn't play until the following year, and certainly not in Division 1. Oxford 1, Birmingham nil. Leicester 4, Manchester. Not Manchester United. Not Manchester City. <laughs> Manchester it's, 1. It's, it's inexcusable. It is inexcusable. Ips, Ipswich 2, Carlisle T nil. Carlisle T? <laughs> What's the T? Town? Is it town? Carlisle's been a city since 1133. That's preposterous. <laughs> Northampton 1, Halifax 0. Okay, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll pause there. What yeah. you notice is the initial letters of a home team spell out the word Colin. Colin Dexter, of course, was the novelist who wrote uh, Morse, who Endeavour grows up to become. Uh, and he famously used to have a cameo in episodes of Morse. That's a little, a nice little nod. Totally inappropriate here. You get lower down. Acton Town losing 2 away at Worcester. <laughs> In football, in football division one, football Darlington division R. One. What's Darlington R? Croydon yeah. T away at Gosport. It's a farce. 
Would you ruin the whole thing for me? If someone offered, if someone said, "Okay, we're making a regional TV detective series, and we need a we need a consultant on set. There's a bit of football that's popping up here and there. We need a bit of a consultant on set, maybe in the writers' room, to kind of iron out some of these things." Would you take it? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, I paid to do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's a different thing entirely. Wow. Yeah. Um, I, I, I just some... wonder if we could bring maybe, maybe, maybe a little bit more Niall Quinn in the plot here. <laughs> <laughs> always welcome. Always welcome. I've got some other examples here, which I, I have to confess are much more glaring than the ones that you have suggested, but still worth talking about nonetheless. Uh, this is this first clip is from 2004 climate disaster epic, The Day After Tomorrow. Um, a scene supposedly set in a uh, remote weather station, and there's a football match going on in the background. Welcome back to Glasgow, Scotland, where Manchester United leads 3-1 over hometown Celtic in this pivotal Champions League match. We return to the action 63 minutes into the second half as Manchester United looks to put the game out of reach. Let's get back to our commentator, Donald McFarland. Only listen to it now did I realise he says... Does he say 63 minutes into the second half? Uh, I think he does. I think he says 63 minutes into the second half, which is, which is you know, perhaps the most egregious offence going on there. But um, uh, anyone who could actually see this film will note that it's actually a 2002 friendly between Boca Juniors and Manchester United at Old Trafford and not Celtic versus Manchester United in the Champions League. What... what trick are they trying to pull here jack well they even got the stadium wrong right like it's, yeah uh, the game's old the game's clearly they old just Trafford. say it's in glasgow as well yeah it's really bad that like how it's not that hard to get right but also yeah, it's not what, hard to where, get right where and, have they been yes what, what yeah, television yeah, yeah, exactly. coverage is this mm. that they come back to this isn't this isn't you have a second test against new zealand in on grandstand in 986 when they've been off to racing at chepstow yeah Wait, welcome back I've been here all the time. They're welcome back. Um, as I suppose, I, I'd say that's probably about a seven out of ten on on the scale of getting football wrong. Um, Thomas Carter writes in, Jonathan, and says, In Coronation Street, all references to Manchester United and Manchester City got binned about 10 to 15 years ago, and everybody started supporting Weatherfield County. What's the backstory? Have they just risen through the leagues like Salford City? Um, why do they... Because this isn't... This is, I mean, product placement is allowed now, but it... Even allowing for that, why not just use real teams? Why can't people support United and City in Coronation Street? I guess you know, there's a danger that events overtake you and yeah, you could end up with something that looks slightly distasteful. Or mm. uh, oh, okay. Because if I, I, I think I'm right in saying that the original credits of Coronation Street, uh, I want to say it was, it's Ancote Street. I could right. be wrong about that. But it's the street where Eddie Coleman <clears throat> lived, uh, who, who died at Munich. Uh, and Bobby Charlton would would go around there for Christmas dinner. Uh, mm. Would go around there on a on a Friday night. And Eddie Coleman's dad would would go and get beer from the off license and bring it back in a jug. So that, that, a there's jug. your there's your Coronation Street football connection. Yeah, fantastic. This one even more glaring, Jack. This is from Lost, season three, episode seventeen. A lot to pick through here. Let's hear it. You left one week before the wedding. Everything was planned, bought, and paid for. You just disappeared completely I had a calling we dated for six years and the closest you ever came to a religious experience was Celtic winning the cup Celtic just winning the cup apparently um, Sam Tennant writes it says what cup Celtic win the cup all the time what cup really did it for this guy even within the show's strange timeline he couldn't have seen the European cup win so it can't be that um, Just that's just lazy isn't it it's just lazy script writing yeah, it reminds me of the bit, um, uh, there was a moment on Neighbours a, f- a few years ago when someone described um, disappointing Liverpool winger Milan Oh, we've Milanovic. got this. 
Oh, yeah, no, we've got, got this clip. Oh, no, we've got this clip. Let's play that one too. Let's <laughs> sorry, go for it. Sorry, sorry. Two in one. Not a problem. Not a problem at all. Let's hear it. Jovanovic? What nationality is that? Serbian. How do you know? Milan Jovanovic. He's one of the greatest soccer players in the world, and he's Serbian. <laughs> Milan Jovanovic, which I think is the most Australian way, <laughs> most Australian Serbian way of pronouncing that name, which is, you know, perfectly acceptable. But. Um, but yeah, let's 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 take the first example. You should specify the the tournament that Celtic had won. That that's fair to say. Well, the Let's only st- thing I would say is, I, I I think it behoves us as as observers to give the scriptwriters, to give the actors, give the characters the benefit of the doubt as far as possible. Do I believe? I don't know who that character was in Lost. Do I believe that that woman was a great football fan? Did she actually know the difference between the Scottish Cup and the Scottish League Cup? And the Europa League, would she even know the difference? I mean, I don't want to demean her, but uh, when was Lost around? Lost was sort of early 2000s, is that yeah. right? Yeah, I'd say so. So it's possibly, you could be talking about Celtic's great run to the Europa League final in, oh, sorry, the UEFA Cup final in 2003. Well, I mean, let's not be disingenuous here. When someone says the cup, they could never mean a European competition, no, could they? No way. Well, they, they could if they had no knowledge of football and just knew it was a thing you played for. They might not even understand this between the final and the semi-final. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying she's really thick, Huge assumptions but... about this woman. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I'm is it because her, her Scottish accent is only slightly worse than yours? <laughs> hey. in, in the grand scheme of things, perhaps the Celtic um, offence isn't too bad, but uh, Milan Jovanovic, or Milan Jovanovic, I should say, Jonathan, must cut you to your core, calling him one of the greatest soccer players on earth. Well, again, is it plausible that character might have believed that? Was he was he being sarcastic? I mean, I think, I think there's something about the Australian accent which sounds inherently sarcastic. So we're in a kind of beyond reasonable doubt <laughs> situation here. Are we? I, I, I just say I I would rather I make a career out of sneering and being snide. I think if we're going to do it, we have to have we have to really examine the evidence carefully. I, I, I forget the name of that character. Um, it's it's slightly post my my neighbours yeah, watching same. heyday. Yeah. I, I think it's entirely plausible because yeah, he's one of the greatest players ever. <laughs> And having a you know a little little joke to himself at this moment of great great Do drama. Think, Maybe that's I'm how he det- dealt with the tension. I'm not detecting any irony there, Jack. I don't think calling Milan Jovanovic the, one of the greatest soccer players on earth is the same as saying we're by far the greatest team the world has ever seen. Well, the thing is, there are a lot of Aust- there are a lot of Liverpool fans in Australia, so it's totally plausible that the joke was inserted as a sarcastically by a Liverpool by a Liverpool-supporting Neighbours writer back in 2010 who was so frustrated with the Roy Hodgson era and the signings of Koncheski and Christian Poulsen and the failures of Alberto Aquilani and uh, Kyriakos and all those other terrible players Liverpool had 10 years ago that they just put it in as an in-joke to other Liverpool fans watching uh, about how bad the players that Liverpool had signed that, that year were. And also, to be fair, if, if your aim as a scriptwriter is to generate attention and, and, and to, to, you know, to to attract coverage. 11 years later, here we are on this enormously popular podcast <laughs> Yes, going through the nitty-gritty of it. That's Click script, bait, yeah. script, uh, script <laughs> writing. Not not keen on that. Uh, but, you know, uh, you, but yeah, once again, your logic is infallible. Final point on this. Uh, Greg James, not the Radio 1 DJ, he's in fact a neurosurgeon, writes in and says, any time football fans are featured on TV, especially in adverts, a large proportion of adult fans will be in face paint. In reality, almost never seen outside of small children and World Cups. Which grown man wears face paint to a routine league match? Jack, I mean, we've talked about um, bad depictions of generic football on this podcast many a time, but face paint does does feel 
slight yeah, I preoccupation. Think seen, I think the last time I probably saw it would have been playoff final. Like sometimes small, you know, smaller club. I'm going to get myself in trouble here, but smaller yeah, club at a at a playoff final, big day out at Wembley, big day I'm out. Sure, yeah. where, do you remember that when Huddersfield? Huddersfield beat Reading about mm. three or four years ago in mm. the playoff in the championship playoff final penalties. Genuinely, one of the worst games I've ever ever been to, at any level. Mm. And uh, and I'm sure you know Huddersfield's big day out. I'm sure there were Huddersfield fans there in face paint who I saw on Wembley Way. If I just patronised you and you're a Huddersfield fan, I'm really sorry. But <laughs> I'm sure I did. There's always always a danger of this on this podcast. Um, okay, so can I can I yeah, bring yeah, up do. one other point on this topic? Yeah. So uh, kind of inspired by Jonathan's bit about. Uh, football commentary that didn't quite fit. Uh, it reminds me of what I'm sure is one of Jonathan's favourite films, which is Role Models, the 2008 rom-com featuring McLovin and Stifler. Uh, and one of the point, and I was I actually, and I remember, when, and I remember seeing this at the cinema because obviously I watch all these films and mm. being surprised at one particular football segment where the characters are all in a house party and two of them are playing what I think is an early version of Pro Evolution Soccer. And I actually went back and watched the film this morning again just to double check. And they're playing, um, I think they're playing Brazil against Colombia because Alano is playing for, for one of the teams. And they have a few different moments where you can see these two characters playing. And then in the, the third time they come back to the characters playing, one of them jumps up and celebrates a goal to end the sequence. And yet... When the camera when when the camera is on the the uh, the PlayStation or video game screen, you can see that he's not actually watching the goal. He's watching a replay of the goal, oh. and he's celebrating a replay of the goal. I couldn't believe the producers. Well, because it's a silly camera, because it's like an un- unorthodox camera angle, presumably. Yeah, because they right. they cut to That's they so show the guys playing, then they cut away, then they show the guys playing, and then the third time they come back to them playing, one of them scores, and yet it's a replay of the goal, not the goal itself being showed. Which and to anyone who's played a football video game. I just couldn't believe they put that in the film. It, it yeah. really ruined role models for me. <laughs> it happens all the time. I want to end this bit on uh, this highly plausible scenario. Okay, Jonathan, in what circumstance, how, what level of football would Sunderland need to get to for you to paint your face before a game in Sunderland colours and go to the game? Oh, look, if, I can go, if we're in the playoff final this year and I can go to it, I'll do it. If, if that's what gets me a ticket, I'll do it. I, I didn't think the bar would be that low. I thought maybe Europa League final minimum. Well, I mean, that's just saying never, isn't it? <laughs> no, it's no, hypothetical. Just, just as a, you know, as a, as a, as a forfeit to, to get my ticket for... I mean, it's possible the Guardian would pay me to go. But mm. going to Wembley as a, as a journalist, as a, as a fan of one of the teams involved, <laughs> as I found out the 2014 League Cup final, yeah. is a truly horrible experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Could, could have your face painted in the press box. Could do it. I mean... That that will be frowned upon and rightly so. <laughs> but if you just if you just if you just completely deadpanned it and didn't mention it, just just carried on with your work as you normally do, but with your face painted and you didn't celebrate goals or anything like that, I'd be interested to see how that went down. I'd be very interested indeed. Wouldn't do much for the popularity of football journalists, as we've already discovered on this podcast. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. 
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruits and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. Astonishingly, we are only halfway through. Tell yeah, us sorry, about the... F- no, no, not at all. Tell us about the first of your minor irritations of football. So when I first started watching football, going to games, watching on telly, I, I'm, I'm pretty confident, obviously it's very hard to test this, I think you could have shown me a photograph of a goal net at any first division ground, and I could have told you the ground. Like, mm-hmm. straight away. Yeah. Not even thinking about it. Yeah. Because the nets were all different. Mm-hmm. They were different colours, they were different shapes. Some had the D-hoop, some had the A-frame. If you went abroad, you got those, you know, the box nets. You had those beautiful big yellow nets uh, in Mexico in 1986. Mm-hmm. Uh, you saw the footage from the 78 World Cup with actually quite a tight net, but also the bottom of the post was painted black. Yes. Uh, Why was bizarre, that? Well, I don't know. There's bizarre rumours um, that aren't true that uh, it was a protest against the, oh, the hunter but it's okay. just i mean the guardian published something on that just yeah. embarrassing just, just <laughs> i mean two seconds of research showed it wasn't true right um should i have slagged off my employers maybe not no. anyway um i did send an email pointing at this out at the time and i was, it was ignored it. so this is my revenge so at what point did this phenomenon end for you do you think well, I think it's it's sort of mid '90s. You you start to get the homogeneity, and I think that's a great shame. You're going to going to, watching a game at the Camp Nou or the Lisbon Stadium of Light. One of the great joys was the nets were massive. They were huge. They went back for miles. It was like an enormous tent a big family would have on a holiday. Yes. <laughs> and I, I I don't know if you do you remember the, the when Dundee United beat Barcelona. Was it three one? They won it at the Camp Nou mm-hmm. uh, in '86. Yeah, the great Eamon Bannon, Morris Malpass, Paul Sturrock forward line. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure all three of those goals came from a narrow angle. So I developed a theory that the deeper the net, the easier it was to score from a narrow angle. Because when you were looking, you know, you as the striker looking at the goal, if you can't see the, you know, between the, the, the two posts, if you can't see the, the back stanchion, it appears your angle is wider. In my head, I kind of agree with you. I just I don't know how it would work in practice, but no, I think you might be onto something there. Actually, uh, this reminds me. I'm going to send you a quiz I made, which is um, which is a mid 2000s Premier League goal mouths, and you, you have to Ooh. identify who it is. See, but mid 2000s is getting hard. I know exactly, but trust me, you'd be very surprised what your brain recognises. Uh, all the all the identifiers of the of the club are removed, like maybe sort of um, local uh, estate agents, things like that, sort of advertising hoardings. So it's purely based on what the goal looks like in the camera angle. You'll be very surprised. Yeah, about in the 80s, they had a they had a red A frame. Tottenham had a dark blue. Yeah, yeah. entirely appropriate. Wembley yeah. was green because it was neutral. It mm. made complete sense. Also, mm. slightly bigger. Went back slightly further than the standard goal. Sunderland, when I first went to Sunderland, it was a beautiful thing, the net. It was a, a red A-frame, and it was very small squares. Uh, so the net looked very white. It was like a bridal veil. And and so, particularly on a, on a misty day, when you got these little jewels of moisture hanging from it. And, and it was just, you know, it was a... It was a beautiful thing. Um, Jack, I know you care little for goal nets and the culture of goal nets, but uh, one thing I... That, that, um, it's because he's did... too young, he doesn't remember the gold Yeah, age. well, maybe, maybe he should I bet care. he doesn't like snooker either, same reason. Yes, yeah, the no, same. No, I quite like snooker. Yeah, 
uh, one phenomenon I've noticed in recent years, maybe I don't know, it might be a Spanish thing, but um, toward, at the end of the Women's Champions League final the other night, um, Barcelona's players were cut down the goal net as a keepsake. Is what's the where are the what's the permissions here, Jack? Like, you, as a that? professional footballer, should you be allowed to just steal a goal net? Didn't PK do that after the 2011 yeah. final at Wembley? Yeah, I think it's really cool. That's North, our goal nets. That's you're oh, not allowed. No. It's probably it's probably UEFA's goal net. What are you are you against it on a kind of like Elgin Marbles argument? Like this should belong <laughs> in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, no, I don't know. Maybe I should have said for, our goal net, but um, it sounds a our bit like league. So, it sounds yeah, it sounds a bit like uh, complaining that Roberto Rossetti has ruined our league, <laughs> or uh, saying that Thomas Tuchel's got to adapt to our league. I'm more uh, no, concerned I'm about it on an administrative because I'm just on an administrative level. I just like the idea of. I like the idea of like real memorabilia. It's like when when cricketers take the stumps away at the end of a test match. Uh, that's cool. Uh, footballers nicking the net is really cool. I'm all what, you know. People should take the advertising it? hoardings. Take the lot. Take what the little stand the that net? the World Cup goes on. What? <laughs> what are you doing with the net when you get it home? Where's it going? Turn it into a hammock. Oh, nice. That is a really good idea. Bet Gerard really Piquet is currently sunning himself on his 2011 <laughs> Champions League final net in his village on the outskirts of Barcelona. And good luck to him. Genuinely brilliant usage of the net. I didn't think what else they could do. But what bothers me about it, it's it's not the taking of a net. I'm all in favour of that. I think it is a lovely keepsake. It's cutting it. What are you doing? Just unpick it. You're going in there with a pair of nails. If you want to sort of divide it up among the whole squad, you you get it done properly. Everybody gets their... I mean, I'm sure I could do the maths if it's eight yards by... (laughs) He's going to do it. He's doing it. Um, that's 24 feet by 8 feet uh, so that's 192 square feet plus the side bits which are probably about what two thirds of that say so we're talking around about 300 square feet a net Mm. so you want to divide it between I don't know say well the 18 man squad coach and assistant coach everybody gets a 15 square feet Maths live. Do you, think, <laughs> do, you think, do you think Messi would accept getting as much net as Ibrahim Afalai and Jeffrey? <laughs> maybe well, you would. Maybe you would. And I, 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 I maybe that would be a very good test of whether Messi really is part of a collective or whether he is a complete egomaniac. Maybe the less players get the roof because the roof's the least important. Oh, part I forgot the, the roof. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah that you the, we the did roof. forget the roof. Yeah. Re- recalculate. Don't recalculate. Don't do it. <laughs> Tell us about your second thing that you despise about football. Yeah, it's it's but people forget that football's a sport. And I don't mean that in, in some sort of nicey nicey we should all shake hands and be friends afterwards. Mm. I mean when when people to justify one of two extremes to justify a ridiculous point of one of one of two extremes go, Ah oh, well, yeah, it's a business these days, or you've got to remember we're in the entertainment game. You're not. It's a sport. It's about the game. And if we put the game front and centre a lot of the moral quandaries over football just fall away. Mm. Football is not there to entertain. People yeah. come to watch because they want to find out who wins. Mm. They don't, if, you know, I, I don't want to come over all Alan Durban, but if you want to see clowns, go to the circus. If you want to see who wins the football match between Arsenal and Stoke City, go to Highbury. Well, this is, this is a surprisingly niche standpoint, given you know the polarisation of modern football. Jack, we are, in the last year or so, and it all came to a head with the European Super League nonsense, is that this kind of rhetoric about the fans and how important the fans were, uh, which is something I feel like, you know, we're obliged to kind of go along with. But 
Uh, Jack, this is what Jonathan Wilson wrote in the blizzard in September 2012. He says, the idea that there'd be no game without the fans is commonplace. There would. It just, it would be small scale, played out in parks, with nobody on the touchlines but the subs and a couple of board players' girlfriends, like most Sunday football. Sport doesn't need crowds to thrive. The likes of hockey, angling and rock climbing get by perfectly well without thousands of people roaring encouragement or abuse at the participants. Football wasn't set up to attract crowds, unlike, say, WWE or cinema. It was organised and structured because people enjoyed playing it and wanted a standardised set of rules and regular opponents. People then came along to watch because they found the sporting struggle fascinating. The entertainment came from finding out who won. It's important always to remember that crowds are secondary. Um, it, it feels like an aggressively neutral position to take. Sport is is the centre of it, isn't it? It's a very it's a very bold position in the sense that football without fans is nothing is a real shibboleth of modern football. Like everyone, it's kind of the uh, e- even people who obviously don't don't hold that position come out with it because they know that it's the one thing you have to say to gain any to kind of uh, to gain any credit or. Or to be seen to be on the right side of the argument. And what's weird is it's, it's got me thinking. You know, we, we, we spend a lot of time thinking, modern football's really awful. What was the point at which we could have said no? Or we could have changed? Is it, you know, people wonder about how far back would you have to go to, to save football? And, you know, some people say Abramovich buying Chelsea or the formation of the Premier League or Tottenham, Tottenham becoming a PLC or whatever else. But it seems for me that in Wilson's mind, that point is professionalisation and having crowds. And that if the game had been kept amateur and it had never become a uh, an entertainment business as it is now, then maybe maybe that is the world that Jonathan would want to be living in. Is that no, right? no, you, you misrepresent me there. I think it's great that people want to watch football yep. to see who wins. And that's why I want to watch it. So, uh, and, and look, this is a very simple way of proving my point. If, if somebody headbutts an opponent after 10 seconds of a game, will the showing of a red card ruin the spectacle? Probably. Is it still a red card? Yes, because you have to stop that happening for future games. You ruin one game to save the game as a whole. The game. The game is the key Mm. thing. It's fantastic that people want to pay to watch this sport. That is a great thing. With fans coming back, it has made the spectacle far, far better. It's a more enjoyable experience. I'm sure it's more enjoyable even for the players. At the moment which people are paying to watch, you have to have professionalism. Otherwise, where's the money going? You're basically saying, this is a toy at which we, we get these sort of performing monkeys to, to, to put this thing on and the local businessman who happens to own the ground takes all the cash. Those players have to be recompensed for putting on the spectacle. And also that means that anybody from any social background can play. It's not restricted to, to people who are independently wealthy. So all of that is fine. But what you have to recognise is, and this is true of capitalism generally, and I fear we may drift off point quite rapidly here, so, so pull me back if I go. Mm. But there, there is, within football, there is a, a, a natural tendency for the big to get bigger, to enrich themselves for success to become self-perpetuating. Mm-hmm. Because you win, more people want to watch you, you get more gate receipts, you can afford better players and you pay them better wages. So you have to have some form of redistribution to offset that. And that is precisely what we had when the league was established in 1888, that you gave 25% of the gate receipts to the away team. And that remained true until 1983. And that is the point at which football goes wrong in England. Now, if you were an English club in 1983, you could quite reasonably make the point, despite all the success of Liverpool and Aston Villa and Nottingham Forest in Europe in the previous seven or eight years, that what was happening in the rest of Europe forced their hands. Mm. And that's why you need UEFA or FIFA or our independent regulator off-ball 
to yes. come in and say redistribute 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 do it here do it there do it everywhere and that's the only way to save the game I, I, now, now you've said it out loud off ball sounds a little bit too close to sort of a comedy football dvd from the mid 2000s <laughs> so it really does need some extra thought but 1983 the year i was born so football died as i was born and the girl there's your narrative yes <laughs> <laughs> um on my final point on this one i, I mean it might sound a bit naive but um given how high profile most of them are I, f- I do feel like in this in this kind of ongoing battle between business, football is a business, and football is entertainment for the fans, have we actually somehow in a weird way forgotten about the players, Jack? Like, the players actually have become not important. Like, their, their welfare, their concerns, um, you know, the fact that they should be the whole point of a sport has actually become secondary, which is really weird to me. It's really weird to me. That point is utterly proven by the schedule, like the schedule is insane. Uh, this is something that Guardiola and Klopp speak a lot, speak about a lot, and they're absolutely right. It's been even more disgraceful in the last year or two since COVID. And the fact that the the fact that none of the governing none of the governing bodies and authorities have pulled or reduced really significantly reduced their competitions um, proves that it doesn't that the players don't matter at all. You know. The, the the fact that all the football has continued this year and Tottenham at one point played you know Manchester United this week have had what four games in a week Tottenham had four games in a week back in September um, that shows that player welfare is completely irrelevant the the people that organise football don't care if the players get injured they just want the games to keep coming and the money to keep rolling in and that really speaks to what Jonathan was was just saying which is the fact that football is completely unregulated because the people who are meant to be regulated are in fact the people who make money out of the game like you can't expect you know, the FA make money out the FA Cup. You wait for make money out the Champions League. Uh, the Premier League is, is a revenue-generating thing much more than it is a governing body in any sense. And that, sh- and that shows that, you know, no- nobody wants to protect the players. Um, they just all want to make money for themselves. And obviously the players are the victims of that. Nobody wants to hear this because it's like, oh, yeah, they're on t- how, how can you be tied on 200 grand a week? That sort of thing. But it's true. I, I, um, on, a, on a very, very final point then, um, leading on from that, Jonathan, I find it quite odd. I mean, no one really seems to talk about this either, is that, you know, after 160 years of of codified football, we've got to the point where lots of footballers, as in the people who actually played the sport, don't actually like football. Like they won't go home and watch it. That's a that's a bit of a shame. I don't want to I don't want to load it with too much emotion, but that's a bit weird, isn't it? You should enjoy the sport. Yeah, and, and I mean, I'm sure you have as well, but you talk to so many players who clearly are very disillusioned with the game, who who clearly yeah, they, they do it professionally because it's a job, but the the love for it that they had when they first kicked the ball around when they were three or four years old is yeah. completely gone. Yeah, that's really Whereas good. journalism, yeah, we, we open the laptop every morning with joy in our hearts and yeah. uh, spring in our steps. Yeah, we love talking about it as well, which is nice. Um, so after spending the last five minutes trying to, trying to stick up for footballers and not treat them with contempt and commodify them, uh, your third and final hatred of football throws that all out the window. Tell us about it. Flamboyance. I hate flamboyance. Not just in football, everywhere. No need for it. It's just oh. showing off. Okay. Now I, I know Jack, and I know his I know his love of Neymar, and, and sorry, that was that was very Neil Warnock. So yeah, I don't know what happened there. Um, yeah, Rabona's for me. If I if I saw if I was a manager and I saw one of my players doing a Rabona, sell him, get him off, sell him. What? Why I, are you doing that? I didn't expect this from you. I mean, I didn't have you down as I didn't. I had you down as a purist, perhaps, but I, I didn't think you'd be that militant against flamboyance. All that time you spent practicing your bona, just practice using your left foot, and that would make you a better player. Football is a game 
of a factory, of a mine, and of a shipyard. Is there any place for flamboyance there? No. You want to be the most efficient man on the production line. That's what football should be. The best football is getting the ball, keeping the ball, keeping it from the opposition, passing it around them, then scoring. Because then you can't lose and you should win. That's what it's about. It's not about tricks. It's not about dribbling. It's not about overhead kicks. It's not about Rabonas. It's not about Trivellas, unless you can really con- control Is it, it about curlers from the edge of the box, like Ronnie Whelan in 1983? Yes, because that was the correct thing to do in the uh, circumstance. Okay. Like, I admire skill, yeah. but it should only be applied. Basically, I think Messi's great gift and what makes him far better than Ronaldo is he chooses... He can do anything with a ball, but he, he almost invariably chooses the lowest tariff thing he needs to do in a particular circumstance to succeed. And that is what football should be. It should be about maximising percentages by doing the lowest tariff thing you can do to it succeed in any given circumstance Jack you're not obliged to debunk this but I hope you can I wouldn't say that like flamboyance and efficiency are not necessarily as diametrically opposed to Jonathan thing so like Eric Lamella can't kick with his right foot but he's why not because he hasn't not, practiced because he's been doing his Rabonas all the time not one but two Rabona goals for Tottenham one against Astoras Tripolis the other against Arsenal in, the, in those moments when the ball was coming to him it was a more efficient decision for him to hit the Rabona with the uh, with his left foot wrapped around his right, rather than to kick it conventionally with his right boot. Like if Tanky and Dombele is trying to get past an opponent, sometimes it is the efficient decision to do one of those roulette Marseille spins, whatever they call them, or a flick flack or whatever, to get past someone. It's not necess- It's not always inefficient to, to try a skill. How do you get good at a Rabona? By practising. <laughs> if you're practising that, by definition, you're not practising more useful things. I think you can make a case... For Lamella's goal against Arsenal, I don't think for the one in the Europa League that it was the most efficient thing to do. I think the one in the Europa League was I just showing off because he could I do see it. What you mean. Yeah, he had he had more time to think about what he was doing. Okay, but let me employ an analogy here because I feel like you're you're ignoring the deception part of flamboyance. A lot of it, a lot of flamboyance is intertwined with deceiving an opponent. You might be doing it in a stylish way, but it, the idea is to, is to hoodwink someone. Let's take this idea. If I was going to pickpocket you, under your logic, the best way to do it would just beat the, beat the crap out of you and take your wallet, right? But a clever, a cleverer way of doing things, maybe, maybe an arguably more efficient way, would be to draw your attention to something else and then and then steal your wallet by by just just reaching in while you were distracted. That that would be almost that would be almost lamella like. <laughs> okay, I mean let, let, let's let's unpick this. Yeah. First of all, you committed a criminal act on both accounts. <laughs> <laughs> Secondly, you've committed a much worse criminal act by beating me up because you've also assaulted me as well as. <laughs> thieving from me so in that sense the clever thing and look if i'm going to be robbed i'd rather be robbed by deception than by physical force that, oh, okay that, that that is true so you'd rather be flamboyantly um, mugged than than violently in in a shipyard manner but if you i mean if you, you're just saying shipyard workers are violent that's <laughs> despicable racism against the north <laughs> um, in a football context if you beat me up before taking the ball off me i'm really hoping that the referee referees a game that's in front of him and sends you off for it if you take the ball off me by deceiving me in the context of football that's fine that's okay you're allowed to have a ball then that's that's not an offense i don't think that analogy really holds up <laughs> that's fine <laughs> um, and it's fine to challenge it and, and challenge it in in depth that's that's okay i'm no, I, i'm i'm slightly disheartened by i mean do you want all all kind of unnecessary skill ripped out of football completely are you this militant about it and if it, if it doesn't perform a direct function would you want it to be removed well no you are you are you are quite correct that that some level of deception 
is useful and so i guess you have in the same way that a decoy run only works if one in 20 times you actually you play the pass to him there is some element of that but just players who indulge themselves i'm coming back to neymar uh who just show off now just jack are you gonna take this neymar shit are you taking it? I'm trying to provoke him with Neymar because I know he. I know he's yeah. a bit. Yeah, we had an argument about Neymar on a different podcast a few weeks okay. ago. Uh, well, the, the problem here is that I can't convince Jonathan that some people like watching skills. I mean, football is not an entertainment. Not... We established that in the last point. No, that's why I did the minute order. We haven't established anything. That's just what you think. Whereas lots of people watch football because they like to be entertained. Well, mm. they're wrong. <laughs> well, <laughs> but um, they, like the. The fact is, why, why are they watching podcast. football? Why, why the... aren't they? Why, if, if, if what you want to watch is somebody doing skills, go and watch a freestyler in Damn Square in Amsterdam. True, there loads of them about. But this is the enduring popularity. Why is Ronaldinho so has this amazing enduring popularity? Even though I, I literally no as, idea. It's baffling as an, for years. Even though as an elite player, he was like he was a highly elite, functional really footballer. He, he, he was, he was good for a few years compared to you know he's not in objectively he's not in the same league as Messi and Ronaldo and yet he still has this amazing enduring popularity with young players and with lots of young footballers and it's because people like watching him do skills and you might not like that but the fact is there are millions of football fans out there Jonathan who don't agree with you and who like Ronaldinho <laughs> and who like Neymar and these players because they do unusual things I know you say oh well why don't you go and watch like a circus performer play but the fact is that it's a lot more exciting to see somebody do something like that in a Champions League semi-final in a in an El Clasico or in a World Cup or whatever rather than just doing it in a market square because you're embarrassing up you know because you're embarrassing other proponents proponents who are, who are professionals there are people trying to stop you there's a high degree of difficulty it's you'll, you'll get humiliated if you get it wrong and so it's a much more entertaining spectacle to see a Neymar Ronaldinho type player do that kind of thing than your ludicrous market square <laughs> analogy <laughs> it, it um, might be entertaining I don't care about that I care about winning I'm completely with Louis van Gaal on this which won't surprise you yeah Louis van Gaal said that Ronaldinho was a great player until he won the Ballon d'Or then he got ideas above a station wanted to move in off the left wing to play in the centre and just wanted to do tricks all the time destroyed himself as a player it, you know, it, it's the same thing as, as you know, why is a steak better than a burger? A burger gives you the cheap sugary hit, but the steak is the real meat. Don't put sugar in your burger. Please don't put sugar in your burger. My issue with Jonathan on this is, and I've said this to him before, he wants Neymar to meet James Milner halfway. Mm. And I just think that's... No, I, and, and I'll give you the same answer I gave you then. No, <laughs> I, I, want him, I want him to be nearer the James Milner man, not halfway. Halfway is not good enough. That's a shame. Anyway, on that note, thank you for all of your time and all of your passion uh, Jonathan Wilson it's been an absolute pleasure to have you cheers thank you very much it's been a, a very long pleasure I apologise for going on for, for so for taking up so much of your day thanks very much Jack for um, for helping me out with this one my pleasure <laughs> and cheers to you listeners we're going to see you next week bye <laughs> I'm Adam Miller, and every week on the Old Firm Facts podcast, I take you on a tour through the beautiful and surreal world of Scottish football, alongside guests from the worlds of music, TV, comedy, literature, and occasionally even football. I debunk Scottish football myths, such as it matters what generic Cockney pundits say about us. He's called me ill-informed, and I think he's bang out of order. I've watched plenty of Scottish football, and I think I'm entitled to say winning that league isn't a big achievement when you're playing the likes of Hibs of Midlothian and Third Lanark. On episodes such as OK. 
Okay John Souter, Shane Duffy Space Jam and Dunfermline Athletic Divorce Party, passionate new voices from fan media tell us what's really going on at their clubs and radio presenters impersonate George Galloway interrupting rants with score updates. Tony Blair has the blood of a million Iraqis on his hands and he should be in jail. Oh, but there's been a goal at Goodison. (laughs) It's the headline, Ochen Lech Talbot receiving league winners medals in Iceland carrier bag branded disappointing. It's one of the country's top teams playing somewhere called the Tony Macaroni Arena and everyone referring to the Tony Macaroni Arena as the spaghetti had. And it's the Wikipedia entry, during his injury rest, Broadfoot needed hospital treatment for scalds after an egg he was poaching in his microwave sprayed hot liquid into his face. It's your path to a new obsession with Scottish football. It's the Old Firm Facts podcast and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. Old Firm Facts on the Big Light Network. The Athletic.